Blog Talk Radio. Stephen James here, and you have found the Story Blender, the site where great storytellers share the secret to great storytelling. And today's guest is Deborah Rainey. She's written 30-plus books that have garnered multiple industry awards, including the Rita, the Carol, the Holt Medallion, as well as three Christie Award finalist books. Her first novel, Avow to Cherish, which shed light on the ravages of Alzheimer's disease and inspired the highly acclaimed worldwide pictures film of the same title, continues to be a tool for Alzheimer's families and caregivers. Deb is on the faculty for several national writers' conferences and serves on the executive board of the 2,700-member American Christian Fiction Writers Organization. And she and her husband live in Kansas. And so, Deb, thanks so much for joining me today on The Story Blender. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's great to be here. Now, one of the things, whenever we first met, it was many years ago, and I still remember your smile. I was like, Deb <laughs> always smiles. I couldn't believe it. I was like, every time I saw you talking with someone, no matter if it was in the hall or after a session or when you were speaking, I was like, she must be like the most pleasant person in the universe to spend time with. Well, my husband might have a little bit different angle on that. Oh, yeah. I'll have to talk with I'll have to have a speak with, uh, with Ken about that. But. I have a lot to be happy for. I really do. But I have been accused of being a perpetual Pollyanna, so I... Uh, <laughs> I don't take that as an insult at all. No, I think it's fantastic. I am. Um, so, and and some of your stories deal with inspirational, you know, topics, and some have happy endings, and some don't. We were chatting off the air for a minute before you came on. Um, officially, I guess you would call your books women's fiction, but often they have almost always romantic subplots and mysteries, and mm-hmm. and so I I've. Um, I was, I was speaking at a conference, and this guy came up to me, and he said, I don't really read any of your books because I don't read in your gender. So um, <laughs> so I was like, I don't really know what gender my books uh, you know, come in, but, <laughs> um, but it sounds like you write in a variety of genders. So that's <laughs> <laughs> I write in one. Well, actually, I do because I love writing the male point of view. So, yeah, I, I do. I do write in at least two genders. I think that's maybe all I've this time. <laughs> That's all that you <laughs> I tell people sometimes I try to write trans genre books, which means basically you can read them in any bathroom you want. So, <laughs> oh brother. <laughs> but um, but actually, what you just mentioned was one thing I wanted to ask you about, and that is writing from a male point of view, especially writing mm-hmm. women's fiction with romantic subplots. What are there any challenges that you find in doing that? Oh, yeah, huge challenges. And I, my husband reads everything that I write, bless his heart. And, yeah. you know, after my first two or three books, he pointed out some areas where I was totally getting it wrong from writing uh-huh. from a man's point of view. And, and I have, I definitely changed. And I often ask my husband or my two sons or my sons-in-law, you know, men in my life, um, is this how you would say it, or is this how you would think, uh, you know, in this kind of situation? But I also often come around to the fact that women 
uh, writers who write women's fiction often write men the way we wish they were rather than the way they actually are. Interesting. So, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So I, there's a little bit of room for fudging, but I do try to, I try very hard, uh, to write a close point of view when I write. And so I, I won't use, for instance, the word lovely, you know, when I'm writing in a man's point of view because men don't think that way. And um, I will use gut instead of belly or tummy when I'm in a man's point of view because that's how men would say it, you know. And a woman would say tummy or stomach or whatever. You know, and and, um, when you said that um, often women will write men the way they wish they were, I think that's Mm -hmm. a good hint for all of our guys listening in. If you really want to know what women want, we need to start reading more women's fiction. (laughs) Yes, we do. Absolutely. That's going to tell us what the ideal man (laughs) is like. That's right. I don't know that any of us will measure up, but... Well, that will be a goal that you could strive for. So. <laughs> no, I'm truly surprised how often, even though my books often are labeled women's fiction, how many male readers I have. Um, but usually I find that if a man has read my book, it's because his wife has put it in his hands and said, I want you to read this. Um, <laughs> and it's because, you know, I, I expressed something that she was trying to get her husband to understand and just couldn't find the words. And hopefully I found the words. And so through the story, you know, she's able to convey what she wants her husband to know. So, but I have a nice collection of reader letters from men that I'm really proud of. So, and it's interesting. You know, my books I I write from a mainly male perspective. I do have female characters that I write from their point of view, whether it's sometimes a love interest of Patrick Bowers or his stepdaughter or other books where I've written different, you know, female point of views. And I find the same thing. Like, I I think it's really important to get into that character-specific perspective mm-hmm. and write mm-hmm. the wor- using the words that person would um, right. use. Even in narrative, not just dialogue, yeah. even in narrative. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so, uh, yeah, I think, I think um, and a lot of women read my books, even though I guess yeah. they're targeted more for guys. They're... Uh-huh. Um, so I, I guess it's hard to really calculate out who who our readers are exactly. You always yeah, try to climb into the mind of someone, but you right. know, say who who would be reading this? What would they be thinking or enjoying? And uh, mm-hmm. I was at this um, one conference one time for uh, preschool teachers, and I was doing some stuff on telling preschool stories to children, Bible stories especially, because mm-hmm. I'd done a book on how to do this, how to tell stories to young children. So, yes, I do write books on how to tell Bible stories to preschool kids, and I write serial killer novels. <laughs> it's just like my my wife says, it's kind of like inviting Stephen King over to do a puppet show for your kindergarten no class. Kidding. It's a little troubling. You never but, know what you're going to get. Yeah, so I was at you this don't conference. forget which book you're working on. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> and um, we had shipped all these books on how to tell Bible stories to children for this conference. And this lady came up, and I had a few copies of one of my thrillers. And she's a sweet old 78-year-old lady, and she came up, and she goes, I am your biggest fan. And I said, oh, that's great. And I started reaching for one of the preschool books to give her, you know, to, so I could uh-huh. sign it. And she, said, she hands me the paw, and she's like, no, this. Like oh okay, <laughs> it's just always not what you were expecting. Not the demographic that <laughs> I expected. Right. So, <laughs> well, that reminds me of of a phenomenon that I'm not crazy about, and I'm not sure what to do about it. But the the whole idea that 
men and women will read books by a male author, but men are, it's almost like they want a brown wrapper to read a book that a woman wrote. And I don't know if you have any, any insight on what the reason for that is, but... I don't know if there if I have any insights, but I would say I think that's that's partly true and mm-hmm. and um for the most part when I start reading a book, let's say it's a suspense or thriller, I tend to read those. Um I can often tell pretty early if it was a male or female writer. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's I, I I guess it's just that women tend to do more descriptions and men yeah. tend to have more um action and mm-hmm. um there was this one writing activity I've done in some of my writing seminars where I'll say, okay, I want you to write two scenes. The first scene is a knife fight. And the second scene, there's a woman on the shore waiting for her husband to come back on a ship, and she's hoping that he'll, he'll come back. So both men and women write both scenes, the, fight, the, the knife fight scene and the kind of the longing um, widow on shore, whatever, like that, hoping for her husband to come, her lover to come back from on a ship and then you pass them around and you ask people if they can tell which was written by a man or a woman yeah. and almost always they're correct yeah. and um and so the women tend to in the knife fight they don't really get much into the fight it's usually more of just getting leading up to the fight but the guys it's like a knife <laughs> fight happens it's right there on the page book. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, the woman on the shore is, you know, the guys tend to write is like, all right, he's late again, screw him, you know, I'm going off to find another guy or something uh-huh. like that. Or talking about the ship coming across the, the water. And, yeah, or the ship, yeah. you know, or the yeah. storm. Or but it is. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, we are wired differently. And, yeah. And, um, but um, well, I, but have I, you ever I, thought I of doing a... Oh, I was just going to say, like a, a pseudonym or a di- writing under a different oh, name or anything. No. <laughs> yeah. I ha- well, I have just to protect my privacy, but I haven't in in order to write something that would be more from a man's point of view, right, right. you know, or that kind of thing. Because yeah. I, because like you're saying, I I like I prefer reading about the emotional aspect of any sure. given scene. And, you know, so that's what I'm going to write, too. And and I love, for instance, reading uh, John Grisham. I mean, his novels are great, but I always want him to get more into the emotions. But how did she feel? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, probably a great combination would be a man and woman writing together. And so we would get both. But the men, of course, would skip over the emotional part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How do you write? the emotional part without it seeming sappy or mm-hmm. contrived. I mean, that's a challenge for me. I don't really know how mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And if you read my first maybe four novels, I think uh-huh. I did tip over into sappy too often. And I'm learning the, the longer I write, the more spare I write, and especially when it comes to emotions. And, you know, I probably still go over the line just a little bit where men readers are concerned. Um, I don't think women necessarily think that it's too sappy. Right. Um, but, but more is less. I mean, that really is true, when, especially when you're writing a, an emotional scene. 
Um, it's probably better just to show me the scene, show me what the characters' faces look like and what their body language is, rather than go into their thoughts, you know, oh, she was so devastated, blah, blah, blah. Right. Which huh. ends up being telling rather than showing anyway. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, a lot of the scenes in movies that just wrench us are usually the ones where nobody's talking. It's just their you know, their actions that we see, the expression on their face, the tear that rolls down their cheek, that kind of thing. So i am I'm been guilty of, of tipping over into sappy, but I try really hard to... Uh, sure. When I was starting that. writing, yeah, back in the day, probably at least 20 years ago, there was this editor who always told me... Um, Put the tears in your in the eyes of your readers, not your characters. Not your character, yes. Yeah, and I always remembered that. And his thing was like, what what draws an emotional response from readers is not showing the character having an emotional response, but holding back from having an mm-hmm. emotional response. Yes, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. but it's so, easier said than done. It really is. Yeah, I was. Um, I read recently that um, Robert Frost had said, "No tears in the writer, no tears in the mm-hmm. reader, no surprise mm-hmm. in the writer, no surprise in the reader." Mm-hmm. Um, That's do you ever true. Yeah, do you mm-hmm. ever do that where you actually write yourself to tears in an emotional oh. scene? I do not consider a book done until that has happened. And and I have written some extremely emotional scenes that that pulled nothing out of me, absolutely nothing. And I thought, oh, no, this book is going to, you know, be a flop. But usually it's when I go back to rewrite. And I love to have as much time as possible between first draft and when I go back in to rewrite, you know, even with, with or without my editorial letter. Um, because then I'm not so close to the story that I just can't even tell if it's any good or not. And yeah. usually in that, you know, in that first rewrite is when I realize, okay, I'm crying and then I'm laughing because I'm so happy because I made myself cry and now I can get the book done. So, but yeah, I I completely believe that. And usually, if a scene makes me laugh, it will make my readers laugh. And if it doesn't make me laugh, it's not going to make anybody else laugh either. You know. So. How do you do that? I mean, let's say that I'm an aspiring author and I want Mm -hmm. to create an emotional connection and emotional response Mm -hmm. without, you know, being too sentimentalist or whatever. Mm -hmm. How how do you, are there any tools that you've come up with over the years um, that you can, that you share with, you know, writers at conferences? Well, I I write very much from real life, not that I'm writing something that actually happened, but that I'm pulling from something that has happened to me so that I can identify um, emotionally with that story. So right. just as an example, in, in the Hanover Falls series that I'm writing in the second book, um, there is a woman who goes from being very well off and very well taken care of, and then when her husband dies, she is basically, you know, just she has nothing. She is left with nothing, and she's left with no hope for her future and all of that. And I pulled, as I was writing that book, I pulled from the emotions that I experienced when my husband was laid off from his job, and I felt like life was over, we would never have anything again which I was being melodramatic in real life. Right. But, you know, it, it really did help to pull those the, the way that I felt, how helpless and hopeless I felt, 
and, um, you know, give my character those same feelings. Even though the reader could see that, well, of course, there's hope. She could do this, this, or this, but she hadn't thought of those things yet, you know. And so hopefully that did the trick. Yeah, no, that sounds great. You know, tapping into that personal experience. You know, some people always say you should write what you know, and some people say, no, don't write what you know. That's boring. You know, don't write what you know. Write what you um, wonder about or question. But I think drawing from those kernels, those moments of deep emotional, you know, connection and resonance, that that would be what, you know, what readers readers most relate to, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and and I have always, I've Go always ahead. gone with the write what you know, simply because I am not a fan of research. I, I just would rather play with words. I don't like having to research something. And even writing contemporary, a contemporary story set in Kansas where I live, there's still a ton of research that goes into it. <laughs> uh, but, but I do think that you bring something to the story when you write what you know. Most people think they know what Kansas is like, you know, but, but I can, I do know what it's like because I've lived here most of my life. And so I can, I can bring something new to a reader who's never even been in Kansas, let alone lived here. And for them, I think it will be interesting because it's teaching them something they didn't know. So, um, But I know what you're saying is, is that for the writer, it will be boring if you're only writing what you know. Yeah, I mean, I I can totally see how people will say, write what you know, because if if I'm reading something and it doesn't bear authenticity and I kind of mm-hmm. feel like, this writer really didn't know what he was talking about mm-hmm. as as far as researching something. Like, let's yeah. say you're writing a crime scene and, and you know, the detective does something ludicrous like spits gum on the ground in the middle of it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you know anything about crime scenes, you're going to try and preserve the evidence and not, yes. you know, do yeah. something like that. And yeah. so if, if that was the case, you know, and a reader would probably be familiar enough with, with that genre, that gender of story, you know, that genre that that the yeah. you know, reader would say, I don't buy it, you know. That the, exactly, the, and therefore the, I don't buy any of the rest of the book because yeah. you have not, you know, you not uh, have, yeah, you don't have credibility here. I was recently speaking at a writer's conference, and this idea of believability came up. And I said, you know what? Even if you have your story firing on all other uh, levels or engines or whatever, the believe or the the characterization is really interesting, and the plot is intriguing, and there's you know plot twists and surprises and stuff. But if you don't make it believable, that's the trump card that cancels everything Mm -hmm. else out. That if it's not believable and they say, I don't buy it, it really doesn't matter how, you know, brilliant your character is drawn because they're no longer in the story. That's right. That's so true. Now, um, when when you're writing um, a story that um, is a women's fiction, now, not all of your stories end, you know, with a happy ending and everybody lives happily mm-hmm. ever after and stuff like that. Sometimes there's mm-hmm. there's a poignancy to the ending where there might be hope but also loss. And mm-hmm. um, how do you include twists and unpredictability in the stories that you write? My secret for doing that is that I am a totally seat-of-the-pants writer. And I, I always, the easiest way to describe it is that... Writing for me is the way we dream. You know, when you're having a dream and you're just half awake and you're aware that you're dreaming, but you still don't see what happens in your dream coming. 
and it surprises you. And that yes. is how, you know, that's what writing by the seat of my pants is. And so often my characters will, this, this will sound crazy to anyone but a writer, but my characters will do things that I did not expect them to do. And I always figure that if, I'm surprised by what my characters are doing as I'm writing them, then my readers will be surprised. I, I hardly ever come up with twists that I sit and plot out and figure out and think, oh, wouldn't that be a great twist? Um, mostly they just happen in that weird place in a writer's mind where stuff like that happens. And I People love it when, when that happens. <laughs> Yeah, people who've listened to this show before probably think I just inserted all those words into your mouth because it's almost <laughs> exactly how thing. I would describe. Good. I'm also uh-huh. an organic writer, and uh-huh. I, I call it organic just because uh-huh. I, I don't feel like it's completely see them. But you understand, I understand yeah. what makes sure. the story work, and so mm-hmm. you're always thinking about those aspects of what's believable and what's credible, or what uh-huh. you know. How can I make you know twist things, or you're always thinking of that, but. But I agree, all of the great twists that I've come up with in my books have come up with during the writing process mm-hmm. as I'm getting to that place where I really don't know what's going to happen next yes, and then. exactly. And studying the story and the context and asking the right questions leads you to, you know, mm-hmm. to the next moment. And I love being surprised as I'm writing my mm-hmm. books and suddenly say, too. What if I did this? And then you start yeah. thinking back through, you know, I have to change this and this or whatever. Exactly. You know, but, I, oh, that'll be satisfying yeah. if we can pull it off. Yes, exactly. And I've always said that, you know, I, I, I used to feel like I wasn't doing it right because I didn't plot things out. And then I realized, and I would write myself into a corner so often when you write through the pants. Uh-huh. But I realized that the time that I spend getting out of a corner and throwing away three chapters because it didn't go where I thought it was, you know, needed to and starting all over is the exact same time that my friends who plot spend plotting. So it's just, it's how your brain works. And I, I tell when I teach at conferences, I tell writers, don't worry if it feels better to write by the seat of your pants, write by the seat of your pants. If right. it works better for your personality and just the way you work and the way you write to plot, then plot. But don't compare yourselves to other writers and think you have to do it the way they did because there is, I mean, there's, there's right and wrong ways to write. I mean, the story has to work the way stories do, but there's lots of different ways to get there. Well, I I agree completely, and I think that there are plenty of resources out there uh, for people who like to structure and plot things out. There are lots of books and mm-hmm. articles and so on, but there really are very few that really teach people how to write organically and how to write yeah. in this way that we approach stories. So that's one of the things that I've done in the show is, is some is really try to you know help people who approach things that way to have mm-hmm. specific tools so that they can do that because it just really mm-hmm. isn't very much out no, there. There is There's how to not. Do that. But you know, I will say that, for instance, uh, James Scott Bell's Plot and Structure. I thought, why am I even reading this book? Because I'm not a plotter. But I got a lot out of that book. There was something about the way he wrote that book that made me want to run to my computer and start writing, you know. Oh, that's so, excellent. Sure. Yeah. And and I've read, you know, even like um, in Stein on Writing, his chapter on plotting, I found helpful nuggets there. I, I, I won't say that I am following, you know, I'm certainly not following, you know, what he says to do step by step because I'm not a plotter. 
but I still found things that helped me, you know, learn how to write. And I'm not sure which of those people or if it was someone else altogether who said um, that's a technique, I guess, to help be sure that your reader will be surprised and to surprise yourself is, and I usually do this in the second draft when I'm reading through, you know, my entire manuscript for the first time. When I come to a place where my character said or did the exact thing that everybody is expecting them to do, then I have to find something else for them to say or do that isn't what everybody is expecting them. You don't want readers to be able to fill in the blanks too easily. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, and I think that's true not just with the story as a whole, but even act by act or scene by scene, that we should never really be able to anticipate exactly how it's going to that, that mm-hmm. end, that scene might end, but that when it ends, it feels honest to us. Yeah. And when, yeah. when it ends, we feel like, okay, no, that's logical, that makes sense, right. but I didn't really anticipate yeah. that. But. Right, and even sometimes I've even gone back and inserted something very subtle so that the reader could go could say, oh, I remember back in chapter three, I should have known, you know, because yeah. when this happened, that was my that should have been my clue. But because I did it subtly, you know, maybe it wasn't picked up on. But at but least see, the reader can the go back and, and say, yeah, yeah, that's why we come yeah. to them, the story. Exactly. Now, um, your first novel dealt with this issue of Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and it was made into a highly acclaimed film. What? What led you to writing that story? And I'm just curious, did you learn anything specific about yourself as you were working on it? Oh, wow. Well, I learned that I very much fear Alzheimer's disease. And yeah. uh, um, I mean, and I did the research for that book, uh, not knowing that I was doing the research. Very early in our marriage, Ken and I moved to New York. And we worked um, in the occupational therapy department of a large nursing home, and there was there were four wings in this home, and one of them was the, a dementia wing. At, at that time, they didn't actually call Alzheimer's by its name until they had done an autopsy. Now mm. they are are quicker to diagnose it just because of the process of eliminating other diseases. Yeah. Um, but I worked with many, many patients that I know now had Alzheimer's, and they, they simply called it dementia at that point. Um, but, but my story was inspired by a couple that my family knew, and the wife um, got Alzheimer's when she was 47 years old. And um, for a long time, her husband faithfully took care of her and, um, you know, did everything right. Um, but there came a point when he... In, in essence, put her away and yeah. uh, went on with his life. And I understand how incredibly difficult it would be, but I am a firm believer in the marriage vows, in sickness and in health, you know. And I, I just felt so sure that the men in my life would do the right thing, my dad, my husband, my brother, um, you know, good, strong men who um, I really felt had it in them to do the right thing and to keep that commitment to their wedding vows. And so that was the passion that I brought to this book. Hmm. And I wrote the story. Of course, when you're using a real story, especially if the ending is such as the one that I, you know, was using, uh, you change every single detail and make it your own. And so it wasn't actually their story. But I wrote the story with the ending, not a happy ending, but with um, a triumphant ending. Hmm. Um, you know, with with a man who 
who does honor, even under great temptation, um, he honors uh, his wedding vows. And so that was that was basically the uh, how that all came about. Now, when you're when you're working on a new novel, you've written dozens of novels. Now, do you tend to work from character or moments? Like, in other words, sometimes when I'm working on a new project, I will. Think of a scene idea or a moment where I think, oh, that would be mm-hmm. really poignant or, mm-hmm. you know, believable or interesting or intriguing, whatever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just think about this character and what would this character naturally do, and then I have them mm-hmm. do that. And so for me it's a mishmash of one and then the other going back. How is it mm-hmm. for you when you work on Well, I would say usually the impetus for a new story is a social issue of some sort, and Mm -hmm. often women's fiction will will deal primarily with some kind of social issue. Um, I've done, um, and usually I I try not to make that the entire crux of the story, but it's it's in the background. You know, it's something usually that the heroine or the hero is dealing with. Um, so I've done like a, a young woman who um, escapes from her abusive boyfriend uh, and finds life, you know, she ends up getting carjacked in New York and realizes that because of this crazy carjacking, she's free from this from the abusive boyfriend. And so what does she do now? She leaves everything behind and actually hitchhikes all the way to Kansas and um, finds a new life there, you know. Um, so the the abuse is over within the first chapter of the book, but she still has to deal with everything that that has it, it has changed her. You know, it has made her a different person to have allowed herself to be abused by this man, and um, and for it to take a crime to get her out of that situation. Why she didn't just walk away on her own when she could, you know. So that's no, I think kind of yeah, where, that's interesting. Yeah. Social social questions and and mm-hmm. um, I never really thought about that before, but I think mm-hmm. from the you know the, I, I've, I, t- I tend to read thrillers and action, but not always. And so in mm-hmm. some of the books that I've read, I guess you would call women's fiction. That seems to have been mm-hmm. the case. Hmm. I I love taking a really hard question. Um, for instance, my second novel, um, because of the rain. Um, was prompted by a, a question that my father-in-law asked when I, I don't even think Ken and I were married yet. He was my father-in-law-to-be at the time. And right. we were talking about a situation where a woman had become pregnant as a result of rape. And we and that brought up the subject of abortion, which, um, you know, had just recently, that this would have been back in the 70s, you know, recently became legal everywhere. And and so I I in my second novel I asked that question, you know, are there circumstances under which um, you know taking the life of an unborn baby would be okay? And, and personally, I don't believe that it is okay, uh, right. except with the rare exception of life of the mother, and that's a whole different that's a whole different novel someday maybe. But uh, but yeah, asking difficult questions is a mm-hmm. key. It isn't starting. I think with a specific message or a specific thing that you're trying to get across right. to people, but but yeah, addressing these difficult questions: how do you mm-hmm. deal with 
you know, abuse? How do you grow through yeah. it? Or, you know, what yeah. do you do if you were raped and become pregnant yeah. and you have strong And I love about... that that forces me to get into the shoes of a person who, who believes completely the opposite of what I believe. And yeah. I love having a character in, you know, have two different characters or two or three different characters who all have different perspectives on this. And it, I think it's helped me to become a less judgmental person. Sure. Um, it hasn't changed necessarily what I believe on any social issue, but it's helped me to be a little more compassionate toward people who, for good reason, feel differently about it than I do. You know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. Hopefully and maybe it I does the same that. for your for your readers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's always the the hope, and yet it's very fine line to be able to explore that kind of an issue without it becoming preachy. And that's the death knell for any book, (laughs) is if suddenly the reader feels like you, you, the author, are preaching to them. How do you avoid that? Uh, I I think that you can never say things point on. Um, You always have to kind of um, let the reader draw their own conclusions from what is happening in the story, not from what the characters are telling you you should think. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a little bit like uh, the question you asked about how do you show emotion without getting sappy. You know, it, it's, it's very similar. You want to show the reader, don't tell them, and certainly don't beat them over the head with it. <laughs> so. Now, Deb, I know you've been both traditionally published and also done some indie publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that it's a route that many people are taking today. Do you have any insights for people who are hoping to break into the writing world and maybe make a career as an author uh-huh. from your you know, experiences on both sides? Yes, and I, I will say that my answer has changed over even just the last five years. Um, there was a time when I would strongly, strongly encourage writers not to go the indie route until they were a good enough writer to get picked up by a traditional publisher. And, right. and I still believe that in, in one sense. Um, I do believe that a lot of indie writers jump into the water way too soon before they really know how to swim. And as a result, their first novel comes out and it's full of mistakes and it just doesn't work as a story and, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, I, I am just such a huge fan of good editors and good editing. I always feel a little guilty that my editors' names are not on the cover of my books with my name <laughs> because, I mean, it, you, you just get so close to your own story that you can't possibly be objective about it. And um, so if a, if a writer wants to publish independently and they have a strong um, a group of other writers around them, a good critique group or critique partner, um, someone who can be objective about their story and give them feedback where they are so close they can't see the, the issues and the problems, then that, you know, that's a little bit different. And if they're willing to be edited and, and uh, develop a very, very thick skin so that they can hear this chapter does not work, you know. Hmm. And that was hard for me. Um, but, boy, I, I, I definitely see the value of that now. 
So your views have changed some, and mm-hmm. but it sounds like your views still the same as far as excellence being yeah. paramount. That yeah. you know, telling a story and doing it well with the help of mm-hmm. other people, be it editors, mm-hmm. critique group, or whatever, yeah. is vital. And don't and, rush into it. Yeah, Just and because I think you I've have seen finished that. a novel doesn't mean it's ready to be published. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, that's what I've seen is that stuff is just published too early and mm-hmm. it's just not mm-hmm. it's just not ready. Right. Um, and but it's now not, your Hanover Falls series. Uh-huh. What's that? Oh, I, I was going to say it's not edited. Yes, uh-huh. and, yeah. and that just, again, that's another thing that for most writers and a lot of readers, a book that is full of typos, it doesn't matter how good that book is story-wise, it is just, you, you can't even see it because of all the errors, yeah. you know. It, it, you lose credibility as a writer, I think, in, in the same way that you do if you haven't done your research. So. Yeah, it's a little strange because people are now so... Um, enthusiastic about getting a book out that they'll actually mm-hmm. publish it and then they'll say, but I can always go back and fix things. Oh, oh I just so, cringe when I hear that. So, yeah, so then they'll publish it and then someone mm-hmm. will say, oh, there's a mistake mm-hmm. or this. And mm-hmm. so then they'll go back and change it so that it can update in the Kindles that are out there and so mm-hmm. on. And I'm just like, what in the world? Yeah. Things have reversed yeah. so that first you edit yeah. it and then you publish it, so now it's become the point now where you the publish other way it, around. Yes. and then you edit it. Which yes. and I say all that as a woman who whose first indie book just came out, first all new indie book came out, and my husband read the print copy. Uh, fortunately, it, it, it is POD. We're doing it through Create Space for the print version, but he found four typos in it. And, you know, we I had two people go through it and edit it, you know, and I thought it was ready to go. So I'm very thrilled about the option of being able to fix those mistakes. They're no longer there if you order the book today. Yeah. You know? uh, and, and that's the, the beauty of not having a, you know, 20,000 print run that is sitting in the warehouse with mistakes that will never go oh, away. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, you mentioned to me that you've been working on taking some of your backlist titles, some of the books that you mm-hmm. wrote years ago, getting the mm-hmm. rights back, and then reissuing those through your own publishing branch. Mm-hmm. How has that been working for you? How? Because how, I know that's something that people are curious about, How, uh-huh. if that's been successful, and how, if you have any advice for people who are going through that. Well, my, the first advice that I would issue is when you first publish with a um, traditional publisher, be very careful about the reversion clause in your contracts. Um, unfortunately, a lot of publishers have made it just almost impossible to get rights back, and I, I really had to fight to get my rights back to my books. Um, and I don't think it should be that way. I just don't. That doesn't seem right to me, that the books, you know, have a good run with that publisher, um, and and then they were considered in print only because they they will forever be available as ebooks, you know, right. could could forever be available as ebooks. So I don't want to badmouth traditional publishers because they have given a lot to me, and I have worked with some wonderful publishers and editors, and uh, you know, all in the, uh, the publishing um, world. Um, and I owe a, a great debt of gratitude to them. But at the same time. Um, our books are our babies. They are our properties, you know. And I think after a reasonable period of time, a writer should have the rights back to those books, and I'm very grateful I'm getting them back now. 
Um, it has been wonderful. Um, because I write contemporary and I started writing in the late 90s, I found that when I, when I was putting my first uh, few books back into print, I needed to go back in and give my characters cell phones and laptops so that <laughs> I could still call the books contemporary. It, it blew my mind how much this world has changed in just a few short years oh as far as technology yeah. is concerned. And, you know, it, that's changed the way I write now. When I write contemporary, I try not to be real specific um, because in a lot of my books, all I have to do to really fix the technology is just go through and search for the word flipped her phone open oh. <laughs> and, and <laughs> right. take away the flip phones and give everybody smartphones, you know. Uh, I mean, that that's a fairly simple thing to do. And give people, you know, laptops that they can throw in their purse or iPads or whatever rather than a big, clunky, you know, seven-pound laptop that they're hauling right. around. But... Um, where was I going with that? Uh, anyway, <laughs> you were just talking about yeah, making the changes to con- yes. continue to keep, keep your stories, you know, contemporary yeah. and um, yes, yeah. So, and so I, I, do, I mean, yeah. it has changed the way I write now in, in order to hopefully keep my books a little bit fresher for a little bit longer. Because uh, and I, you probably have that problem times ten because you're you probably are using a lot more technology in the kind of books that you write and yeah i mean it it's um i remember i was working on one book and i thought it would be really interesting if the character could search online by humming a tune but i thought it could be a clue that he could hum a tune and then he could search for it and find that online well as i was working on the book now this is a a decade ago right Uh but as i was working Uh on the book the technology came out and there was actually a website that was released while i was working on the book and I thought, well, if I do mine, it's going to feel old. By the time the book comes up, people are like, well, of course you can do that. Yeah, you know? so everybody's been around. That. Yeah, everybody yeah. knows you can do that. <laughs> yeah. And so, so yeah, for me, it's like this challenge of trying to guess what technology will be like right. two years from now. Because by the time I write the book and it's published, you still want it to be to, to feel, feel cutting edge, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's that's pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really yeah. is. Um, the other, other than that, I mean, I don't do a lot of editing. Um, my, with my first books, I did just because, partly because, like I said, I'm a much more spare writer than I was then. And so, um, for instance, I will go in, in in my earlier books and take out all of the speaker attributions that I possibly can. I used a lot of speaker attributions, and now I hardly use them at all. Uh, I much prefer beats and tags, you know, in yeah. place of he said, she said, or nothing at all um, if it's a quick back-and-forth kind of dialogue. So, now, that's interesting you know, that you so. do spend some good time mm-hmm. reworking the stories and making mm-hmm. them, you know, Updating. I don't think that a lot yeah. of other authors that I've spoken with do that. They just kind of take it and, you know, like it's okay. finished. It's just done. say this was what it was when I published it. Right. Yeah. And so send yeah. it out there. Uh-huh. And I mean, if so, the book if the book was well written and was was professionally edited, there's nothing wrong with that either. And and yeah. I envy historical writers who don't have that problem because everything is correct the way it was because they did their research and history's already happened and. You know, that's yeah, a exactly. whole different uh, ball of wax. So. 
Now, for people who aren't familiar with your books, where would you say is a good place to start to get a feel, maybe okay. the newest or maybe something from the past that you've reworked recently? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say my my newest um, traditionally published series is the Chicory Inn novels. And I think that would give readers a good idea of just of the kind of writing I do. It's kind of a family saga. It's about a couple who um, they basically spend their retirement money on change, uh, updating their home to be a bed and breakfast. And as soon as they finish and have their open house, their five kids, one by one, for various reasons, start coming back home. And so the, the, each book stands alone. Each book is the story of one of their kids and what, you know, what caused them to have to come back home for a time. Uh, and it speaks a lot about just the value of home and what home is and what it really means to people and how it, it can be. I mean, it should be. And, and if we're parents, we hope that this is what we're creating for our children is a place where they always can find themselves, where they can always come back and be who they really are or find who they are if they if that hasn't happened yet in their lives. And uh it each right. book uh deals with some kind of social issue. So I think those, you know, would be a good place for people to yeah. start just to get a feel. But then the the other next book that I would probably recommend is my favorite book that I've ever written. And I'm sure one reason that it's my favorite is because Publishers Weekly actually liked it, <laughs> which, which hasn't happened for me real often. I mean, they always say, you know, you're, you're just thrilled to get, a, to get uh, reviewed by Publishers Weekly, whether it's good or bad. But I've had enough bad reviews from Publishers Weekly that I'm, not, I'm very proud of a good <laughs> review that I have from them. Um, and that, the title of that book is A Nest of Sparrows. Um, but the other reason that it's a favorite of mine is because it was so hard to write. It just about killed me to write it. I gave it everything I had. And, you know, it was the kind of book where at one point I literally found myself on my knees in my office saying, I can't do this, God. And um, <laughs> at that point, things kind of started falling together and falling into place. And I did, I did make it. And I actually turned in, I think, 140,000 words. And my editor said, oh, Deb, we can't publish this. We, you know, you've got to cut at least 20,000 words. Oh, my goodness. I think I, I, think I cut 10. And, it, and the book was the better for it. It almost Right. Um, wow. But it's a, it's one of my longer novels too. But I I do love it. It's a favorite of mine. Well, that's fantastic. And, yeah, no, that mm, sounds good. Yeah. Another reason that I love that book is because um, my my daughters. I, we have two sons and two daughters, all grown. And my daughters have, have read my books. You know, from the get go, they they were readers and still are readers and still read my books. Um, our oldest son only read my books because when he was in college, he was giving plasma, and uh, they they wouldn't let him bring their Game Boy or anything like that. They could only bring a book, so he just <laughs> grabbed a book off the shelf, which happened to be one of mine, and and I think he read maybe two during the course of college. Then our youngest son, um, his fiance, when she discovered that he had never read any of my novels, she she basically said, "I won't marry you until you've read at least one of your mom's books." Bless her heart. <laughs> and so he chose A Nest of Sparrows, and he actually really, really liked it. And he said that he saw a lot of our family in that story. And it's the the characters in the book are nothing like our family. I mean, the situation is completely different. But for whatever reason. 
that came through. That that part of my right, what I know, you know, came through. Yeah, yeah. And and it, it touched our son, you know, and so that touched me. So that was a long way of of answering your question. No, that was that was a good answer. You know, uh, I was thinking when you were talking about it, what's my favorite book that I've written? And yeah, maybe one of them is The Rook, which is an early novel that I wrote. But I came up with the idea for it while I was reading to my daughter, who was eight at the time, a book on sharks. And oh. so I remember that um, sharks have a sixth sense. That's um, they're one of the only animals in the world that actually have this verified sixth mm. sense. It's called the ampullae of Lorenzini. It's like these se- separate sensory things in their nose that, anyway, when a shark swims through oh. the water, it's moving back and forth. It's not sniffing and it's not looking. It's almost using it like a metal detector to try mm. and locate mm. the magnetic impulse from the the brains and the muscle twitches of the of the, of the prey oh. it's looking for. So in any oh case, they can... Goodness, I didn't yeah, know that. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, so they can mm. identify a fish even if it's hiding under three inches of oh. of uh, soil or, or sediment at uh-huh. the bottom of a... Of, a, of, a, of an ocean or something. So anyway, mm. when this whole thing came up, I had this idea. The whole idea for the book came that night. But for me, one of the things that made it special, was it's interesting, I think, but also just that it had that family connection with uh-huh. my daughter when yeah, she was a little exactly. girl and I was re- <laughs> reading to yeah. her on the couch and then yeah. kind of came up with the idea. That is, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Don't you always wish that you could somehow read your book apart from everything you know about it and read it completely objectively the way a reader will and then come back to, you know, what you know of the book? Oh, my goodness. I just, when, I once my books come out, I never want to look at them again. <laughs> oh, seriously? Oh, my goodness. Do, do you read galleys? Do you read your galleys? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's usually when I feel like I am getting to experience my book as close as I ever will, the way yeah. a reader will, is when I'm reading galleys. So, yeah, yeah for I people listening, because, galleys is kind of like the last chance you have to look at it before yeah. it gets you know, published and printed. <laughs> right. and, yeah. and uh, even physically, it's, it's in the form that it will look like in a book, you know. So that, to me, that... I don't know. I'm just a very visual person, so even the white space on the pages makes a difference to me in how the pacing of the book works and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, I'm the same way in the sense when I'm working on my book, though, I print it out in that format. Yes, yeah. Uh, when I'm and editing. I'm, so I, I do, too. I, I miss so much on the screen. I don't know what it is about the computer screen because it's still black on white, you know, but, yes, I, I do. I print mine out, too, so. Now, before we close up, you mentioned earlier to me when we were off the air just about how you like to include mystery in the stories that Mm -hmm. you write. And I was just curious, when you're working on a story that has more of a mystery angle to it, how do you pace that so that readers are surprised at just the right time? Uh, (laughs) You know what? My ignorance somehow works because I truly don't know the the nuances of how a mystery is supposed to be paced. Uh-huh. And yet whenever I I um overlay one of my plots after the book is done because I don't plot before with right. like the three act structure or um James Scott Bell has the right from the middle and the the mirror moment, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's a really fascinating concept of writing your story from the from the middle of the book when the character uh-huh. has a mirror moment. 
And my books, I can go open my books straight to the middle, and that is, you know, I will find in almost every one, that's when my mirror moment happens, and I did not plan it that way. I I think that there's something about having grown up as a reader and having just devoured books my entire life until I started writing when I was 38 years old um, that just put that knowledge in me organically, I guess. I don't know how else to explain it um, because I just seem to know. And there have been times when um, an editor will say, you know, I think your pacing is off a little bit. This got revealed a little too soon or you needed to reveal something earlier. So, you know, I I still depend on my editors to help Uh me know if that's working or not. But for the most part, I, I feel like it does work. So. Yeah, and well, and you, you know, you studied story even though you didn't look at it like mm-hmm. that when you were growing up, and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you voraciously read, and you realized yeah. instinctively, I think, you know, this mm-hmm. this works, and this is the it right works pacing. Works or it doesn't. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's another great. piece of advice I would give anyone wanting to write is that you can't write unless you have read extensively in the genre that you want to write in. Um, you know, you just you need to know what is expected of of your genre, and uh, often the answer that I will hear at writers conferences when I when I make that statement is that well I'm writing just a totally new genre. You know, this is really, right. it doesn't fall into anything. And my answer is always well, if you want it to be traditionally published, you need to find a a an established genre that it will fit into because that's how it will be sold, you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's often hard for people to sort of at least, I guess what you're, what you're saying makes sense to me, through traditional publishing, is that they'll say, is this a romance or is this uh, women's fiction or thriller or whatever it is. We have these somewhat randomly drawn up um, genres and uh, that helps them with the marketing and packaging and so on and and it may be true that with self-publishing or independent publishing some of those can be um, blurred I'm not really sure I'm not an mm-hmm. expert on transgenre books exactly <laughs> but um, but I think that the goal is always, you know, to tell the best story and get it into the hands of the right readers and so mm-hmm. if you know, defining your genre will help you do that and to understand what these readers expect. And then I think that's a, that's a huge plus in your favor for getting the right story to the right people. Yes, I agree. And, and the, the, key is, I mean, if, again, if you're, if you're publishing independently, like you said, you are going straight to the readers. But if your goal is to publish traditionally, first you have to get through the gatekeepers of the acquisitions editor, right. who thinks very, very strongly by genre. And for, for instance, in my case, I can say I write women's fiction with a strong romantic thread. Um, or I write women's fiction with a, a thread of mystery, you know, woven right. throughout. You can kind of you can kind of blend the genres a little bit, sure. even with a traditional publisher. But there still has to you still have to know where on the shelves at Barnes and Noble they're going to place you. You know. So. Now, do you have any closing words of wisdom that you want to share? Anything that's been burning in your mind as we spoke and you said, I just didn't get a chance. 
to share this. I think earlier, I said but. it all. I think you <laughs> me dry of any words of wisdom. Oh, um, I don't know about know, that. I, I think the, the thing that I always want to say to writers, uh, right after I say, don't publish too quickly. Make sure, that, I mean, you know, a brain surgeon doesn't, doesn't perform brain surgery on a living human being after their first year of med school. That just doesn't happen. Um, so, um, understand that it's going to take a while if you're just starting to write. It's going to take a while before you're ready to throw your work out there for the world to see. Yeah. But the other thing I'd say after after saying that is just have fun. This is the most fun job I have ever had. And there's, there's difficult things. There's days that I would rather be a toilet cleaner, you know, than be a right. writer. But for the most part, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. So don't let anything take the joy out of writing and don't let anything take away your passion for the story that is burning in your heart. And That's a great place to, to close up with. And so, Deb, is there somewhere online where people can follow when your new books are released, or what's the best place for them to connect with you? Well, I have a Facebook readers page, and if you just go to Facebook and search Deborah Rainey, you will find Deborah Rainey's readers page, and that's where I usually, I try to keep the rest of my Facebook a little bit free of advertising, but that's where I, I will share news of new books that are out. Um, but I'm also on Twitter as author Deb Rainey, and my website is DebraRainey.com. Deborah is C-E-B-O-R-A-H, and Rainey is R-A-N-E-Y. Um, I love Instagram, and I'm there as Deborah Rainey. Um, I, I, I'm a very social person. I'm very much an extrovert, which makes it difficult sometimes when you're a writer. Um, so yeah, social media has been a gift to me. I just love it. Well, that's fantastic. And so we mentioned a couple of the series that we mentioned here were the Hanover Falls series and the Chicory Inn novels. And also your favorite novel was The Nest of Sparrows. Is a that correct? Of sparrows. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So we want to encourage all of our listeners to go out and check those out. For information about my um, my novels, you can go to novel. Uh, you can either go to novelwritingintensive.com where it talks about my conferences, or just to stephenjames.net. And for more information about our other guests and to check out our other broadcasts and podcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.